Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm joined as my guest and co-host this week by former two-term Congressman Paul Hodes. You know, we used to do this kind of thing on Beyond Politics that we're going to do today a little bit more often. We would do a news roundup. We talk about all the many things going on. We kind of got away from doing that because we had so many really interesting guests that we've been able to get onto the show. We're really proud of that, really happy about it. And by the way, thanks everyone who's been subscribing to the show through whatever podcast listening platform you use. We really appreciate it. And it's clear that you all really appreciate hearing from all of these fascinating guests with insights and perspectives and inside experience. And we're going to keep doing that. But this week, there's just been so much going on that Paul and I thought that we would do a good old fashioned news roundup. Paul, you excited to do this? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing so fascinating as listening to myself talk. So I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. I'm, I'm delighted. Well, yes, usually we do get to cover that over with the voice of, for example, Jim Clyburn, the third right. ranking member of the of the U.S. House of Representatives. <laughs> now, look, he was a great guest and your part of that episode was also fantastic. It's it's two great voices in one episode. But yes, uh, we do. listen, li- li- you know, I, I just our guests, um, our listeners may remember that we had as guest my former colleague, Steve Israel. And Steve is is as it turns out is one of the funniest people I've I've ever met. Um, he now has opened a bookstore, but in addition to his keeping his hand in politics um, by running an institute at Cornell, um, he's also an author and he's written two books: uh, "The War on Morris," "The Global War on Morris" was his first novel, and the second one was called "Big Guns," and I've now read them both and in. In, in one or the other of those books, he talks about former members of Congress who are basically anonymous. He said, you know, they're, they're, there's a lobbyist talking and they're talking about all the people and the important people in Congress. And there have been about something like 12,000 people in American history who've served in Congress. And some of them have, um, have been really, truly historic figures. And they have their names here and there, and they have plaques or pictures, and they are remembered and spoken of. And then there's the 11,990 anonymous former members of Congress who have disappeared into the mists of time and history, of which I count myself one. Well, there's no former like former member of Congress. There's the famous story that when Lyndon Johnson was elected to Congress, he showed up and on the very first day, the elevator operator advised him, hey, you're going to love it here. I should know. I used to be a member myself. All right, <laughs> let's let's take advantage of your insights as a former member of Congress, anonymous or not, my insights as a former congressional staffer for several members of Congress, anonymous or not. And uh, let's, let's just run through some of the stuff that's going on. I, you know... I feel like maybe the place to start is Ukraine. It, it's top of mind for everyone. But there's a connection that's been coming out in, in media analysis and reporting over the last few days that I thought was particularly interesting because it's a theme that we've hit on on our show quite a bit. And it, there was a report from NBC that the U.S. and other Western countries are saying that if authoritarianism prevails in Eastern Europe as 
that's what Vladimir Putin's trying to do right now, right? He's trying to export his model of Russian authoritarianism to Ukraine and Georgia and just about everywhere else in Eastern Europe. If that happens, then it's going to spread elsewhere. There's, it's, it's reasonable to look at this as sort of a global struggle like we saw during the Cold War between two very different models. Back then, it was sort of authoritarian communism versus Western democracy and capitalism. Now, it's sort of ethno-authoritarianism, you know, what, what we're calling in the U.S. white supremacy, kind of these strongman leaders with, a, you know, sort of promulgating their view that there's a pure version of their country and political system, and that's what needs to prevail against you know, shadowy inside forces, yada, 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 this kind of crap that you're getting. But, you know, the, the, the case that Democrats in this country are starting to make, according to NBC, is like, hey, have you noticed that we're seeing the same struggle in the U.S. of A, that this is basically the fight that we're seeing between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, that it's sort of, and, and not all portions of the Republican Party, but certainly the MAGA Trump portion of the Republican Party, it's basically like Putin-style authoritarianism as represented by Donald Trump versus the rest of us who still want to cling to a quaint notion that, yeah, the United States should be a Western capitalist democracy. Uh, is, is all this stuff going too far in your mind, or is this, is this actually what's going on? So let's go back a little bit in history. Um, State of the Union address, Barack Obama, the first African-American United States president, is speaking. He's been elected. Um, um, and Joe, it was Joe Wilson, right? Joe Wilson of South Carolina yells. Shouts out, you lie. You lie. In the middle of the State of the Union address, a kind of shocking interruption um, which, at least in my and you know my understanding, had not had never really happened, and we were kind of heckling at the State of the Union, and you know we went on then to see that the Koch brothers uh, and other shadowy right wing actors then uh, turned the Tea Party into a movement to try to shut down uh, healthcare for Americans, reform on healthcare. Uh, and uh, the Tea Party and its ilk grew into the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and I can draw a straight line between what I call corporate authoritarianism in the United States, where giant corporations are now have now in uh, infecting the political process and 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 really in many ways controlling with their money, their influence. Um, uh, the positions that people take. But there's a fairly straight line between Joe Wilson, you lie, um, and Josh Hawley and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton, and the kind of right-wing spasmodic rejection of democracy, which for a long time was pro, pro-Putin. And we saw that in the United States around the impeachment of Trump over the Ukraine um, uh, embroglio in which he black, tried to blackmail um, uh, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky into doing him a favor uh, to try to win the election. And uh, fortunately, Trump lost the election in 2020, but then we saw January 6th. Um, and before that, we saw real violence um, in Michigan, which was a uh, which was practice. So, so the ugly side of American politics, the know nothing, violent rejection 
um, of democracy has a long history in this country. Um, and it's been aided and abetted throughout our history by white supremacy uh, and corporations. I don't say this as an anti-capitalist. I don't say this as some kind of nutty left winger. It's just evident throughout our history that that strain has been there. Trump was elected, and one might argue in 2016, that he is the ultimate ugly American, a greedy, self-serving, narcissistic, crooked, criminal uh, corporatist who cared only about himself and whose election elevated white supremacy and violence to new heights and gave permission, not only in this country, but one could easily argue around the world um, for enabling authoritarians. He seemed to fawn over Putin. He seemed to uh, appreciate Kim Jong Un. He, um, uh, you know, he he clearly uh, Duarte, Duterte in um, in the Philippines was, uh, you know, might as well have been a buddy. Um, Trump was an authoritarian, and he and and a new American position with an authoritarian minded president in power really had a lot to do, I think, with enabling authoritarian movements, which were already nativist uh, and on the rise in certain parts of uh, Eastern Europe and with strong right-wing movements in countries like France. Fast forward to an, you know, to a, to a, to a Putin who miscalculated, you know, maybe it's hard to imagine, but maybe he said, figured, okay, I mean, Trump, Trump, uh, Trump licked my boots and uh, maybe America is so divided that they're now weak and I can do whatever I want. Who knows what he's thinking? But authoritarianism by force may change the equation. It's, it's interesting to take a look at, at Poland and Hungary, where, which seem to have been, which have been adopting an authoritarian bent um, increasingly are now accepting refugees, which is, you know, not outside the authoritarian playbook um, in terms of nativist, nativist supremacy and nationalism. They've now been flooded with refugees. Europe is going to have to have a reckoning um, with itself over what to do with 3 million people who have fled Ukraine. Um, the one thing that we see is, though, that the, the world has come together to, or most of the world, except for the outliers, have come together to condemn what Putin has done, to say we respect territorial integrity of, and the sovereignty of nations. It's not exactly a, a ringing endorsement of democracy, but many of the countries of the world that have rejected what Putin has done have done so in the name of freedom and democracy. And Biden, um, although you know, arguably not the, the, the strongest, loudest, most loquacious or best speech making among American presidents has been able to reforge alliances that people uh, thought were dead, has been talking about democracy and freedom that casts us back to, one might say, a better time in America, when America was the acknowledged leader of the free world. And it is possible it is just possible that if America can maintain 
its new position as convener of democratic free nations opposed to violence and aggression, it is just possible that we will see some softening of the power of authoritarianism, uh, which has been so much inevident over the past few years. Well, the two pieces of that that I would react to, and I think one resonates a bit more than the other with me. I do, I, I would accept the line that you draw back to about that time frame, 2010, when Joe Wilson shouted out, you lie. And what was capturing, you know, and captivating about that moment was it was sort of this explosion, maybe it was premeditated, maybe it wasn't, of a kind of, of a reaction to, as you say, a, a Black man being president and this sort of total breakdown of decorum. It was like, Hey, you know, the rules don't apply to this U.S. president because of the way he looks. And 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 Joe Wilson just couldn't even help himself. This kind of rejection and anger and and backlash that he was feeling internally. But I would go back even two years prior to that. There was at the time the Virginia governor, George Allen, running for U.S. Senate, and he suffered what was called the Macaca moment. Do you remember this? This is where there was a young a tracker, a, a campaign staffer whose job was for the Democrats to follow him around, right, video right. him. And he saw this young man who was Indian, Indian American. Um, at the back of the room, and he he referred to him as Makaka, and uh, and but and, and what was lost in kind of the the furor of the the evident racism of that moment was the rest of Allen's sentence, which was "Welcome to the real Virginia, welcome to the real United States of America." And that was happening at the same time that Sarah Palin was referring to the real America and drawing a, a pretty stark dividing line between what she saw as real legitimate America, the kind of America that resonated for her, the, you know, the, the kind of small town Republican bastion America, and the non-real America, which was the America that was supporting Barack Obama, young, multi-ethnic, a little bit different culturally. And since then, we really have seen kind of this, this struggle over these two visions of America play out. And Barack Obama's vision of not a red America, not a blue America, but one United States of America was, was ascendant for several years. Then there was a backlash. You got caught mm -hmm. up in the backlash in 2010, right. in, the, in the 2010 election, right, in, in your U.S. Senate campaign. I, and the backlash, I don't, I, yeah. you I remember. Want, I don't want the government taking over my health care, but keep your darn government hands off my Medicare. And the backlash continued, obviously, and fed right into the what is the theme of make America great again, if it is not this vision of here is an America that represents the real America, and we are going to reach back and find that real America because it's comforting. And so, yes, of course, there is a parallel to be drawn that you're, you're drawing as well between the kinds of uh, uh, language constructions that Vladimir Putin uses, you know, of like the real Russian identity up against these, what does he call them, drug addicts and, and Nazis or whatever it is. Right. And the kind of language that Donald Trump uses that this you don't have to squint too hard to see that connection. And that is very much what our Republican Party has fallen into under Donald Trump. 
The place I don't see as strong a connection is the corporate link, because this is also still a struggle between two very different visions of the economics of our society. And capitalism is very much embedded with the Western liberal view of, of free and open democracies. And I, I think that what you point to as sort of the role of corporations in what we've seen in the Republican Party in the last, let's call it a decade or so, is much more kind of a, a law of unintended consequences type deal. No one is more invested in Western capitalism than big American corporations. This is in their best interest. And in fact, it's the tools of Western capitalism that we're now deploying through our sanctions on banks to put a stranglehold on Russia as our major source of response to Russian aggression and authoritarianism. So I see a little, just a, a little bit of a distinction there that that, that I don't, I don't glom quite as much onto the Republican Party. But in my mind, there's no doubt that there is an appeal that that goes right to this idea of there's a sort of ethno-authoritarian nationalism you see in a lot of the language that the Republican Party has adopted domestically, and you see it front and center in, in what Vladimir Putin and like-minded authoritarians are putting forward in Russia and around the world. That was an epic rant that I just indulged in. And there you go. I, you know, I want to, I want to move on to a slightly different topic, and this is going to take us across the radio break here. So let me, let me just set it up here and then we'll, we'll take a, we'll take a quick break. I'll even, I'll even let you get started on it for a minute. You know, on the democratic party side of the coin, we've been obsessing about the Republicans and their problems for a long time. Speaking of being a multi-ethnic party, We've been worried on our side of the equation about the role of, in our presidential nominating process of states like New Hampshire. And now what's on blast front and center is Iowa. There's been a lot of maneuvering over the last week to get rid of the Iowa caucuses front loaded position, you know, right, right smack dab at the front in the presidential nominating process. The argument is, first of all, the caucus is a mess, right? It's, it's completely Byzantine. It's completely not transparent. And second of all, it's a, just a terrible representation of people's actual opinions, just a bad way to kick off a nominating process for a president. Now, you've got to be careful about this, right? You've been a delegate multiple times to the, to the convention. You know, you've been an insider in democratic politics and New Hampshire likes its early first primary state position. What do you make of all this maneuvering around Iowa? I'll give you about a minute on it. And then, and then we got to take a quick break. So it's, it's perennial. Um, it's been going on forever and ever. Um, people are, have been making the arguments that Iowa and New Hampshire are too white to be real, um, that they're not, they don't belong in the, um, in, 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 in the process because they just aren't reflective. And so there's that overlay of the whole thing. And then after the last caucus in Iowa, um, there are some special considerations that have come into play about caucuses in general uh, and how Iowa is working. First of all, Iowa is in the Midwest and the other states that are involved in the first four bracket, uh, since it's March Madness. Uh, the, other, the other's in the first bracket. New Hampshire's in the upper, upper, upper right, uh, Carolina, North Carolina, 
South Carolina is in the lower right there, and Nevada is out in the West. So Iowa does have a place as a Midwest state there. Unfortunately, the caucus process is a is a is a mess um, for anybody who follows how the caucuses work. Um, what do the results really mean? I mean, you know, trying to get people into the caucus, trying to figure out how that works is, is crazy. New Hampshire has a law on the books that says we're going to have to be first for any primaries. Um, we've got to be. I mean, that's that's a state law, which everybody seems to be, at least the recent commentators are all recognizing that New Hampshire has this law. So Iowa says, okay, we may be white, but we're a farm state in the Midwest and you need uh, the Democratic Party needs farmers um, and needs people who care about the Second Amendment and it needs people from flat places and it needs people in the Midwest. So, so we really are okay. And then some suggest that the only way to save Iowa is to make it a primary, which won't suffer the fate that the last caucus in Iowa did when they tried to switch to digital this and digital that, and the whole thing fell apart in such a bad way that it left everybody and Iowa quite vulnerable to saying time for Iowa to go the way. So who would replace Iowa in the Democratic pantheon? And how would they, by the way, even switch to a primary with a state that is now Republican controlled. There's nothing the Republicans like better than a mess in the Democratic uh, in the Democratic uh, vo- um, nominating process. They would like to make it even worse if they could. So I don't see much hope of Iowa actually changing to a primary state. And you know, there is nothing so powerful as inertia. And 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 although there's talk, and although it's the perennial talk, I note that people are not talking in the same breath about getting rid of New Hampshire, even though both states have been accused of being too white to be real. Um, and, you know, you could say they're too old to be real. I, nobody's talking about getting rid of New Hampshire. All right. So um, can I go there? Can I go there yeah, for sure. a second? All sure, right. Look, for sure. So first of all, just a quick history lesson on this. You know how th- there's a saying that the Pentagon is always fighting the last war, which is like, you know, you learn the lessons from last time, then you over apply them the next time. Well, that's basically how we ended up with the current nominating process on the Democrat side. So go back to 1968. The problem, the so-called problem, was that there was a perception that there was too much power for party insiders because Vice President Hubert Humphrey was selected as the nominee without winning a single primary. So what happened? We fought the last war. The Democrats said in 1972, okay, we're going to have this modern primary process. And they, they created this commission and, and, and they created what we see today. All right. In 1980, the problem was we thought, well, the pendulum's gone too far the other way. Party leadership isn't having enough say in selecting the nominee. So back in 1984, there was another commission because we love commissions among Democrats. And that created the system of superdelegates. All right. Now you're going to remember the superdelegates because this was seen in 1980 as a good thing, right? Party leaders would get a little bit of a thumb on the scale, except in, in 2008, we started to see, well, some states are jumping ahead of Iowa and New Hampshire. So they were docked delegates. So we tried to lock in Iowa and New Hampshire early in the process. And then in 2016, we said, well, hold on a second. The superdelegates had too much say. So we dialed that back. So we're always fighting the last war. 
And we're missing the real point. What is the point of a nominating process for a party? I would argue that it's to win the election. It's to win the presidency. So Paul Hodes, if you were designing a presidential nom nominating process for a party from scratch, without regard to any of that history that I just gave you, where people were trying to solve the problems of yesteryear. And so we ended up with this stupid, like a camel as a horse designed by a committee. So now we have a camel of a nominating process. So would you ever design it the way we have it here? There's only one answer I'm gonna accept. Oh, oh ye of little faith. I mean, you're asking somebody who spent most of his life in New Hampshire to make some kind of half-wit, hair-brained argument that New Hampshire doesn't belong in the nominating process. I mean, here we are, we're living in- well, I think it does. I think it does. I'm just well, wondering, we're, we're, is our entire system the right system? We're living in a tarmac to tarmac uh, kind of campaign society. So I'll, I can easily argue for the New Hampshire primary and its primacy because it gives candidates the opportunity to go into living rooms and around kitchen tables, followed by gaggles of the media and press in smaller kinds of uh, uh, groups to actually to to try things out and to work on their campaign messages. And New Hampshire makes people better candidates than they were before they come to New Hampshire. So that's I think part that of my argument. I think that argument. No, that's, it's absolutely true. I've seen it happen. Nah, that, that argument I've seen it happen. Because you can go into living room. Nowadays with social media, you can go to a living room anywhere from sea to shining sea. And you yeah, no, 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 no. Don't you can do that in Los media. Angeles. Don't give me the social media argument. I'm talking about real people. I'm talking about human to human contact. I know, I know that. But there's no value in that. There's yeah, no value right, in that because no... how, how much of the American presidential campaign, how much of the American presidential campaign is conducted in living rooms these days. It doesn't matter. It's all conducted on social media and TV and to some extent, radio and mail. I don't care if someone is able to connect with someone when they're sitting down across their coffee table or in a small, you know, like the Hopkinton town hall. Who cares? That's not the skill set that you need to win the presidency. Here's yeah, an but, argument. But how are you going to know who you who you want to have a beer with unless you can actually get them into a couldn't care less. town hall? Couldn't care less. And, and Don't want to have a beer with a president. That's Not what interested. really that's what really counts. You remember when Barack Obama tried to do that with the so-called beer summit after that police officer? Yeah, that didn't work Lewis too well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So here's my argument. Here's my argument. I don't care about any of this crap. I don't care about it. I only care about winning. And in the age of Donald Trump, there's nothing else that matters except winning. So let me ask you, let me ask it this way. Why on earth in the Democrats nominating process do we give more weight to the places that have more Democratic vote? So disproportionately, Massachusetts gets more delegates per capita than a place like Arizona. Even though Massachusetts is one of the bluest states and Arizona is a true swing state decided by something like 10,000 votes. Why do we care what the people of Massachusetts, sorry, Massachusetts, why do we care what Democrats in Massachusetts have to say about which nominee we should select as Democrats than the Democrats in Arizona who are actually gonna have a lot more to do with whether or not our nominee wins. It's totally backwards, it's totally stupid. So the reason that Iowa should not have a primary position 
oh, sorry, I'm using the wrong word there, an upfront position in the nominating process is that Iowa, I'm sorry, it's just not that competitive anymore. What I would do if I were designing the system from scratch is I would go in order the most competitive states. And I would let the Democrats in those states have much more proportional weight. And I would select those states in the calendar to get, get spread out throughout the calendar so that you would get various cracks. I want the candidate, not who connects in people's living rooms or who someone wants to have a beer with. I want the Democratic nominee to be the person who's gonna win in Arizona and Wisconsin. And by the way, in New Hampshire, which remains a swing state. That's my argument. Take that, Iowa. New Hampshire should stay on the calendar. Iowa, that, sorry, that's just not your role. Well, that's pretty interesting. You know, I, I, I commend you for your, for your thought. That has about as much chance as ha of happening as, um, I don't know what to say. You know, I'd like to say as much chance as Donald Trump becoming the next president of the United States. But look what happened when I said that the last time. So, so okay, maybe it could. Should it? Well, it certainly would be more rational. But whoever said that anything was rational in politics or the way we organized our elections? Um, just because it's right doesn't make it good. Yes, well, I... I... I agree with that. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe Democrats right now are, are edging toward the right place, but for the wrong reasons. And they're thinking way too small. They're thinking way too small. I know you're a, you're a high level thinker and, you know, really what needs to happen is a total soup to nuts redesign of the entire process. I, I again, as I said, the people with the most voice in the party should the people should be the people who have to actually win in the contested swing states. And sorry, the electoral college is not going away, folks. It's not going away anytime soon. So, so, so your argument is because there are only six states that count anymore; those ought to be the primary states. Uh, what my, what I'm arguing is that first we should weight the system so that it counts more toward the nomination. How well you do in. Arizona, Wisconsin, yeah, New Hampshire, in, in let's call it the top 10 most competitive states. You can even call it the top 20 most competitive states. There are certainly 30 totally non-competitive states. I'm sorry, Hillary Clinton ran up her margin in California. So what? Who cares? She didn't become the president. The second thing I would argue is that, yeah, we should, we should have the earliest we shouldn't select the earliest states in the process based on tradition or smallness or, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that you get to do this thing that we've done for the last 50 years. We should spread out those key tentpole primaries, the places that are absolute must win, so that we have a process that candidates have to go through that gives us the best chance of selecting the nominee who's going to be most competitive in the swing states. And finally, the final thing I'd argue is, I know, I know I'm not trying to offend our friends who supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. I but know you there will, was a perception that- this, But you're happy this, to. I'm just, but I'm probably going to. I know that there was a perception that the superdelegates had too much of a role, but I do not have a problem with some more voice for party leaders 
especially party leaders from those swing states that we need to win in. If you have an expertise about what it takes to win in Arizona, I want you to have slightly more say than your average bear about who the nominee is going to be. That's that's what I'd say. Okay. Yeah. Make All right. let's make it so. I've beaten I've beaten Paul Hodes into submission with my impassioned <laughs> argument for something that you're right is probably never going to happen. Hey, I have a question for you. It was kind of sad over the weekend. Don Young died. He was the longest serving member of Congress. He was 88 years old. He was from Alaska. He was extremely colorful, to put it in the uh, nicest uh, possible way. You I'm served with Don Young. Do you have yeah. any memories of serving with him? I, you know, I remember his office. Uh, I remember going into his office, which was, uh, you know, congressional offices are very interesting. Thing. They're kind of like trophy rooms in in some in a club, you know, where people hang the 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 the, the heads of the buffalo and moose and stags that they've gone hunting for, or you know, the grizzly bear rugs. And Don Young's office was sort of this epitome of Alaska wildness. That was pretty incredible. And he was when I was there, he was really old, so he got even older. Um, and, uh, but he, he was there for a long time, but he was, uh, he was, a I would say he was a very old school kind of member of Congress and, um, and, uh, rest in peace, Don Young. He was an extremely colorful guy. He was not up on technology. When I was working on Capitol Hill, he was the chairman of the house transportation and infrastructure committee. Every five years or so, Congress has to reauthorize the way that we spend money on infrastructure in this country, especially roads, highways. And there was all this maneuvering when we did this in the mid 2000s, I think it was 2005, because he was the chair of the committee at the time. And he came up with an acronym, one of these convoluted acronyms for the piece of legislation that was going to reauthorize how we, how we spend on highways. And it was safety, right? It was a set of words. I can't remember what it stands for, but the idea was that it was focusing on, you got it, safety. But here's the thing. The technical name of the bill was actually safety-lu, safety Lou. Why the heck was this massive law that spends hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars named safety Lou? because his wife's name was Lou and he wanted to get that into the acronym. I also remember a particularly memorable hearing where he had an absolute prohibition on anyone having a phone. Back in those days, it was Blackberries. This was pre-iPhone. Anyone having a Blackberry and woe betide you if a phone should ring in the middle of a committee hearing. And one of the Democratic members actually did have his phone go off in the middle of a hearing and he was cat-like. He like snatched it off the desk and turned, turned it onto, onto silent. Uh, you know, it was like the fastest action I'd ever seen a human being undertake. And Don Young got so, so enraged that this had happened was that, you know, he, he, he kind of turned on his microphone. And he said, now I've told all of you before that we're not going to tolerate this kind of thing. And around here, if you can use a ringy dingy, then you can use a vibrator. And I would say that the rest of that committee hearing did not proceed very well. No one could keep a straight face. And we were so all was, done with trying to pass infrastructure for that day. You mean, so he, he, was, he, was he actually promoting the idea of vibrators in committee? That, he, was, a, he was, I, I think he meant something else. Uh -huh. I'll just put it that way. I think he may have misspoken, but I will hand him this. 
Um, he was conservative, you know, he was a Republican, but he would work with Democrats. He, he, he was unconventional. He would behind the scenes, he would work to get things done. And that's something that is in too much short supply. So I agree with you. Rest in peace, Don Young. You know, there was another headline that came up over the weekend that I wanted to run by you. The, the latest worry, I think is the way that uh, Politico put it for Democrats, is that Joe Biden hasn't been decisive enough on whether to extend student loan debt relief. And I'm just going to quote here from the article, while White House officials have indicated the president may extend the freeze on student loan payments for the fourth time, Biden's lack of certainty ahead of other looming, uh, another looming deadline is causing heartburn across the president's party. The idea being that if you don't do this, young voters who disproportionately vote for Democrats will be disillusioned, not to mention financially wiped out and will not show up in the midterm elections. Paul Hodes, should President Biden extend this freeze on student loan repayments? Is that the right thing to do? And does it matter politically as much as that article lets on? Um, listen, there, there are two things that President Biden could do that would uh, perhaps galvanize a block of voters who don't really participate in politics. That's young voters. Uh, Democrats are always after trying to get young voters, and they don't seem to ever really get them out in the numbers they'd like. One is deal with the student loan issue. A freeze is fine, but really he ought to go a lot further um, and, 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 and deal with whatever financial consequences there are um, and, and give real relief on student loan debt, which is burdening um, our society and our economy in, in so many ways. It's, it's really, it would be an important and smart thing to do. But he probably thinks that moves him too far to the left. At the very least, he ought to keep the freeze on, but he ought to really figure out something more comprehensive, number one. And number two, to get young voters, the one thing that they always asked me everywhere I went when I was campaigning and nothing really has changed is what about the national uh, hypocritical laws about marijuana, especially in the face of so many states, which are now moving to recreational um, use of marijuana, not just medical use. Um, and it's still like this weird system where you've got recreational use in Maine and New York and Massachusetts, but it's still federally pro federally prohibitive to to bank bank the money, which creates a real a real problem. And by the way, young voters want to see marijuana, uh, marijuana on a national level decriminalized. So yeah, that's interesting. If, if Biden wanted to do two things for young people, that those are two things he could do. Your question is, yes, freeze the student loans. You know, I, I have several reactions to this. I, you're probably right. First of all, you're probably right. It's the simplest thing to do, freeze the student loan. Second of all, in terms of his campaign promise to extend $10,000 of debt relief on student loans to all students, I could see why he's feeling a little conflicted about that. I mean, the number one problem right now for, for him politically is inflation, and that would be seen as inherently inflationary. That's probably not really true because students have been repaying their student loans. So it's not like future student loan debt forgiveness would really affect inflation, doesn't matter. It would fall into the wrong bucket of, of activities. The only things I would add to your 
analysis, which I otherwise agree with. Or first of all, I have never been convinced that there's quite as tight a relationship between policy actions and voter turnout as this article and other things we've heard recently make it sound. I just don't think voters calculate things that way. Like, oh, you know, this guy did something good for me six months ago. And I remember that. And uh, now I'm going to make sure to show up to vote to say thank you. Just don't think that that's the way voter calculus works. It's it's not just what have you done for me lately. It's what are you going to do next? Now, I agree that to some degree, you have to keep some of your promises so that you'll be believed next time and you have the capacity to make future promises. But I'm just not that convinced that, that this matters that much. I, finally, I, I kind of agree with Pete Buttigieg's argument that as an overall matter, I have nothing but sympathy for people who carry student loan debt. We carry student loan debt in my household to this day, and I ain't young anymore. However, I do think Mayor Pete had a point that people who have student loan debt from college are the ones with the best financial prospects long-term. If we really wanted to help people who are a little lower down the socioeconomic ladder in terms of their income and their long-term financial prospects, we should really be doing something about medical debt. And by the way, it came out this week that the credit rating agencies are going to no longer count something like 70% of medical debt toward your credit rating. This is this is a huge deal. And that's a big deal. Yeah, very beneficial. And especially given, you know, I had a Newsweek article about this, about Stacey Abrams' organization, which went out and, and forgave tens of millions of dollars. They purchased up and forgave right. tens of millions of dollars in medical debt. I would personally, as a matter of values and, and economics, prefer to see us focusing there as a policy matter. But yeah, I otherwise agree with you, Paul. We should just get this done. At least extend the freeze. All right, look, we've got about a minute left. So lightning round question for you, former Congressman Paul Hodes. The Senate unanimously, or I guess without objection, agreed to make daylight saving time permanent. Is that a good idea? You know, having uniformity uh, is a good idea, believe it or not. Um, uh, daylight savings time is a tortured history. If people listen to the special edition of Capital Close-Up uh, that um, uh, just aired and will be podcast, you'll hear an extensive history of daylight savings time. Make it uniform. Stop the confusion. Help me. Help me, please. I can't figure it out. You know, it, it is interesting. I, I really would urge people to check out Capital Close-Up. Subscribe to Capital Close-Up along with Beyond Politics because it has a tangled history. And we tried this once before, and it turns out people didn't like it as much as they thought they were going to. But I do agree that uniformity would be better. There are some counter arguments, especially given the extended darkness in the mornings, which is not so great for teenagers getting up for school. But all told, I like my daylight in the evenings in the summer. So I'd like to keep it permanent. All right. For, with that, for Paul Hodes, I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time.